Well, hello and welcome back to The Will and Rob Show. My name is Will Stockton. I'm a ministry associate here in Washington, D.C. with Ministry to State. And actually, for the first time ever, I am hosting the show without Robert Hassler. So this is something of a new experience for me. Uh, Robert has taken the reins when I haven't been around and done an excellent job. So we'll compare notes afterwards and see who is actually the better at hosting the show when one of us isn't around. But um, today, as we have come back from Thanksgiving, we are just super excited uh, to have with us John and Caitlin Shelton. Uh, John and Caitlin Shelton have both worked on the Hill. uh, And I actually, I think I met you guys through a J house party um, or a faith and law event before the pandemic. If it wasn't the J house, it was maybe through burritos. Oh my gosh. That's right. The legendary burrito Tuesdays. That makes the most sense. Well, um, so John works on the Hill. He works for uh, a Senator from uh, Utah. And then Caitlin has also worked on the Hill, but is currently a senior policy advisor for the Institute of Women's Health. And I wanted to have them on um, to talk a little bit about their story and background. Uh, You guys both have master's degrees, so you've gotten advanced degrees, and there's a lot of people on the Hill who are interested in going back to school. And so I wanted to hear your guys' thoughts on um, how uh, graduate school can apply to people working on the Hill, what they ought to look for, and how they can channel their experience, whether they come back or not. Um, You guys are married, obviously, and have kids. And so what is life like being married um, and having twins? which is super exciting. We'd love to hear about that, how that's going. Um, and then just how your faith and applies to your work and then the unique uh, work that you're uh, called to at this time. And so I guess I just want to start there is how did you guys get to know each other and how did, how did y'all meet? Uh, and what's life like now with twins? Well, we met on Twitter, actually. Okay. Okay. On that, though. We, we met, we met on Twitter what, four hours before we met in person? That's because you were stalking me. You knew I was going to be at an event. And so you showed up so that you could meet me in person. I thought he was a jerk. I he, I was responding to a tweet that he had sent um, and because I didn't know who he was, but he was kind of being a jerk. And so I was poking fun at him. And then he showed up at the event that the ERLC was hosting. I was interning at the ERLC at the time, the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission. He had interned there the summer before. And we met at a briefing on the Trinity Lutheran decision about rubber tires in Rayburn House office building. Very DC. Do you, John, is, is this true? I mean, there seems to be a little bit of disagreement here and I wanted to see if we can get some confirm or deny There's a lot of spin. I think Um, it's sad to see that even from your own spouse, you you just can't always trust what you're being told. You know, there's there's a certain core element of truth there, but a lot of spin. Mm -hmm. Uh, I would say that all that had happened was so my year at the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission, we had three interns in the summer. And, uh, you know, next year comes around and Dr. Russell Moore posts a picture of, of the new intern class. And I look and there's eight people. And so I think, wow. And one girl, me. Yeah. Well, okay. This is my version of the story. <laughs> Gender is not relevant here. <laughs> it's relevant the, later. The, so I was flattered. And that's why I, I, you know, wanted to reply to this tweet of the picture because, wow, you know, 
my year with three people, we got so much done that they felt that they needed to, to scale up to just preserve that kind of workflow. So I, I just, you know, I, I just wanted to put this out on social media. And so I did, and I was perceived to be a jerk. He responded and said, wow, I'm so glad to see you had to hire double the number of interns this year to get the same amount of work done. I know, I was And flattered. then I responded and said, no, they just hired a woman for that. And I said, and it, quadruple the amount of work that you guys were doing. This was before her internship had even basically started. So yeah, the, the jury's out. Well, I guess if y'all compared total work output at the end of your respective internships to see what we actually did, but we should, I wonder if there's a way to go back and quantify, <laughs> you know, the Will and Rob show does a lot more than just podcasts. We really try to facilitate healthy marital discussion and dialogue to deepen <laughs> others relationships. I, I'm surprised this didn't come up in premarital counseling. Yeah, so, me too. Yeah. We could have really, really saved a lot of time. Yeah. It's never too late to do the right thing. And uh, <laughs> so, so you, you saw this tweet um, and then I, Caitlin, you, you, uh, when John showed up, what, what was, what was next? I was like, oh, I think that's that jerk that responded to the tweet. I didn't actually think he was a jerk. I thought he was funny. Um, and so I was glad to see him there because I was very intrigued by his Twitter bio. He said that he was a Babdo Catholic, which I had only ever heard of. I was at Yale Divinity School at the time. And some of my friends there referred to themselves as being Babdo Catholic. Um, and I was like, what the heck? What is that? But it sounds kind of interesting. I kind of want to be that. Um, and so anyway, uh, we met after, after the briefing and really hit it off. John had just finished at Duke Divinity School. So it was kind of cool being, having someone to talk to that was at um, a divinity school, but had come from an Orthodox background and was Orthodox. I, I don't know that maybe Duke would describe itself as being Orthodox. I don't, I'm not positive that Yale would. It, it describes itself as being Christian, but I don't know that it would self-describe itself as being Orthodox. And I, I did not think that it was Orthodox. So Yale would probably find the term Orthodox, except where it applies to the Eastern Orthodox as problematic. Oh uh, yeah, probably. Lowercase O, lowercase or o yeah. Orthodox. Keep, um, well, let's, let's go there. So you guys uh, had, had both finished grad school, had both been to, uh, Caitlin, you got your master's in ethics. And then John, you got your master of divinity. What was y'all's thought uh, process behind getting uh, these degrees? And then, and then further, how have they applied to your work on the Hill yeah. or how have they shaped your thinking in your work? Why, why don't you go first? I feel fine. <laughs> I have a very convoluted answer. Okay. So uh, we need the, the listener to be, um, Kind of lulled into to, to buying in before I, I, I go off. Okay. Good strategizing. So, this is great. Yeah. So I, I never intended to go to graduate school. I was going to teach high school at a classical or Christian school in Jackson, actually where we are right now, visiting my parents for Thanksgiving. Um, but my advisor in undergrad, I went to Union University here in Jackson, actually. Um, which is a Christian school. Lovely, wonderful, highly recommend. <laughs> um, I had a friend after college who did, um, it wasn't Teach for America, but it was uh, a Memphis Christian version of Teach for America. Uh -huh. And 
she got her master's degree, I think, in teaching at Union. And so oh, there was a connection between the two. Yeah. And so I, I got to see her when I would visit. But That's anyways. So yeah, I love Union. So my wonderful advisor, Dr. Mark Dubas, he, I went into his office. It was just before senior year, um, the last semester of senior year. And he was like, so what are you thinking moving forward? And I was like, I think I'm going to teach high school at one of the two schools in Jackson. Um, he was like, I think you need to go to graduate school actually. And I think you need to go to Yale Divinity School because they have this program that I think would be perfect for you. And I was like, what? Um, so long story short, I applied. It was, I was as shocked as everyone whenever I got accepted <laughs> um, and made my way to Yale Divinity School. Um, and I was able to do this really cool program studying religion, but, or Christianity and also law. So I took half my courses at the law school half the courses, half my courses at the divinity school. And my degree is a master of arts in religion and ethics. So it's kind of a mouthful, but I was focusing on ethics specifically. Um, and so in being there, I realized, I really don't think that I want to go on to do PhD work, um, at least not right now, but I think I would like to try and put some of these philosophical ideas into practice. Um, and so I thought, why don't I do an internship in DC and see what that's like. I had always been interested in politics, though I, I never took a poli-sci class. So I'm kind of an anomaly in Washington, DC. Um, but yeah, so I ended up in DC. I worked on the Hill for a short stint before ending up in the Department of Health and Human Services. Okay. You know, one thing uh, I remember, there's a book by Steve Garber um, yeah. called Visions of Vocation. Yeah. And uh, yes, he, we were just with Steve a few weekends ago. at a Oh, retreat. oh, that's awesome. Yeah. At the beginning of the book, he talks about um, the way people come to Washington who are big thinkers and want to see ideas and whether it's philosophical ideas or policy, whatever, put into reality and made a reality and what you were saying when you were describing your, your, um, your education at Yale, you were like, Oh, this is going to be a great place to take what I've learned and make it into something real. Is that part of how you yeah. were thinking? Yeah, definitely. And okay. people often say like, Oh, what's your degree in? You have a degree in theology. And they give me kind of a funny look. Um, but I think that theology touches everything. And one thing that I learned during my time at Yale was that as Christians, we're called to theologize everything and bring everything under the Lordship of Christ. And so I totally see all the work that I do through the lens of Christianity, through the lens of the gospel. Um, and I see loving my neighbor. I see my job as a means of love, loving my neighbor. Um, I'm a, a big picture kind of macro level thinker. And so I like thinking about problems from, from the macro level and thinking about how to try and solve them. And that is a means, politics is a means of doing that. It's not the means and it's not even the best means or most important means. 
um, as I think we're all prone to to think that it is sometimes. I mean that that reminder is is so needed right now that this is not the only way to love your neighbor, but it is a way which puts things in a like a helpful balance tension. There's kind of a tautness there. Uh, and so, John, you said you have a more convoluted answer, but we're ready. We are primed and ready to go. Yeah, Caitlin is a creature of far greater intention and purposiveness than I am. So I just to give you an example, the reason so I went to the University of Virginia for my undergraduate studies. And the reason I ended up there was because I applied there because my parents agreed to do the cinnamon challenge if I would apply to go there. So uh, I, I and they did. Uh, and so I applied not thinking I would even go. Uh, and then I got in, I was like, I guess I'll go. So my, my whole life I've been, uh, I, I think one of my, my greatest flaws has been uh, sort of just uh, going, going where, where doors open and, and uh, lack, I don't have a five-year plan. Actually, the, the most stressful question to me is what's your five-year plan, 10-year plan. But anyway, so I was at the University of Virginia uh, studying, well, I was an engineer at first, and then I realized I was really, really bad at that. And I switched out. I was almost so bad at it, I couldn't switch out. Um, but you have to have a certain GPA to switch out of the engineering school, it turns out. And that's, was, a, that's, a, <laughs> yeah. that's a, like a, a MMS multi-level marketing scheme trap right there. <laughs> yes, I, I, you know, I, I'm trying to think if I ever actually did read Catch-22, but from my, my limited understanding <laughs> of Catch-22, that isn't in fact a Catch-22. Anyway, so I, I eventually switched into the religious studies program and I was um, uh, part of a Christian fellowship called InterVarsity. And um, I remember one summer we had a, a summer retreat for, for um, leaders in, in the, the fellowship. And they did the kind of different units you could do, different breakout groups. And mine, the one I chose was on the Sermon on the Mount. And they kind of presented this very fulsome case for... Um, Christian pacifism that, that got in my head and, and uh, did, did a number on me. I've got a lot of military in my family. My grandfather was in politics. He served in the U.S. House and then U.S. Senate. And then the executive executive branch. And so it just sort of bothered me. I I found, found pacifism uh, plausible and, and, and somewhat attractive but I, I couldn't square it with everything else that I, I kind of had taken for granted. So um, there were just a lot of theological questions percolating in my head that kept me up at night. Um, and again, not being a, a person of, of uh, planning, I, it wasn't then like, I need to then go to seminary or divinity school. It, it, there was this weird incident. Uh, it's the only way I can think of to describe it where I got terrible poison ivy. I was, I was taking, um, filming someone's proposal, a friend of mine who was living in the same house. And I made the mistake of hiding underneath a, a patch of leaves, which I did not know at the time, this was an organic apple orchard. And they used the, the, the leaves as an organic way to, to kill poison ivy. So I, I got poison ivy all over my body. I was like um, a leper basically, like oozing pus. I, I won't go into it anymore, but I, I couldn't sleep for like two weeks. It was so bad. So every night I was, I was, it really helped my prayer life. Actually, I was, I was praying Job-like to God, like, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And it was really, really good for my prayer life. I, I, I should have uh, poison ivy more poison, often. Poison ivy more often. 
And um, I, I won't be praying for that for you. Yeah, I, I, yeah thank you. Thank you. I'm apparently very sensitive to it. And one of the mornings, um, I, as I was praying, like, God, like, please deliver me from this poison ivy, which sounds pretty ridiculous in, in retrospect. Um, I, having no charismatic bones in my body, just felt the Lord tell me you should go to seminary. And I was very confused by this because I was not praying about to sit, going to seminary. I wasn't discerning that. I, uh, so this was just very odd two in the morning as I was trying to take a warm shower to relieve myself from the poison ivy, uh, insanity that, that this would sort of be what, what I, what I hear from the Lord. And, um, so yeah, I thought it was weird. And so I, I told my friends about it and they're like, Oh, that, that actually makes a lot of sense. Like we've actually been telling you that I was like, really? Okay. And then I, I talked to my family and they're like, yeah, that actually makes a lot of sense. We've been telling you that. I was like, Oh, okay. Um, I'm glad I was paying attention. And so because I was at university and at uh, the university of Virginia, which has a really strong, um, religious studies program. Um, I was sort of caught between all the people who I know, knew uh, best who were formed well as faithful pastors went to Gordon Conwell and all the, the PhD students in, uh, religion, theology, and ethics that I respected and weren't kind of like the Yale crazies, uh, <laughs> legitimately, basically went to Duke. And, you know, they were a little bit weird, but they were at least kind of would go to the same churches where, where I would go and would, would um, think that they are doing good, good Christian um, education and, and things of that nature. A lot, of, uh, a lot of Wendell Berry fans yeah, yeah, Wendell Berry. Uh, yes, yes, that, that is correct. Um, and so I kind of visited both, and I was thinking at the time that I wanted to keep doctoral work open to myself, and it seemed that that Duke allowed for that more, um, and so I, I ended up going to Duke. Um, so that, yeah, one of the more intentional episodes of my life, but again, not necessarily that intentional not it wasn't me setting out like I'm going to go here and do this for this purpose it was I had really bad poison ivy and then I felt the Lord tell me to go to this place so oh man well so that's a that's a great point then here is to ask in y'all's respective work and so John you were telling me um, before we started recording how you were really interested in working on the child tax credit it's something that you were really interested in and then um Caitlin, I would love to hear more and learn more about your work as well. Just, just what the Institute for Women's Health is. And then as you're a senior policy advisor there, what your work looks like. So you guys can choose. I'm going to let y'all work this out. Who wants to go first? But I would love to just uh, get you guys thoughts on how your, uh, again, that choice to go to grad school uh, has informed, shaped, and um, guided you guys in your day-to-day work. Yeah. And then yeah. long, whether or not five years, but you know, future vision for for work. Don't care now that I've, I've told you my group tonight. Start with <laughs> your Virginia story, working in the district office. Oh, well, yeah. So <laughs> I think if, if anyone has anything to benefit from listening to me talk, it's, it's how not to, to go about their life and <laughs> figure things out. Because uh, so Caitlin's told me to start with uh, how I ended up in 
Yeah. In the beginning, it feels like whenever we first started working on the Hill, it felt like going to grad school set us behind everyone else yes. because being working in Congress is very much a like you do your time, you start as an unpaid intern, you work your way up. And so we started working for people who were actually younger than us. And so we're like, what the heck? We just went to graduate school and now we can't even get jobs. Um, so this John's story is right, funny. Right, right. And so to set the context more about how my life, uh, God has purposes for my life, but I, I do not myself. Um, so in, as I was saying, I, I went to divinity school thinking I would do doctoral work. I did kind of all the things that you would do in order to get uh, accepted into programs. And then I applied and I didn't get accepted into programs. So I figured I needed to figure something else out to do. And so I was interested in political theology um, and political ethics. So I just thought, you know what, maybe I'll go to Congress and I can do the practice of politics while reading theology and we can kind of call it lickety split. And um, not having taken any poli sci classes, I, I taken some um, like higher level political theory classes. I didn't know nearly so much about Congress as I ought to have known. So I uh, went about applying to internships and fellowships and different things. And I got accepted to a district office internship, which to me, you know, um, not, not, not so wise on these things. I thought that meant in an internship in the district of Columbia office, the district office. So I showed up for my first day and, um, I was confused about how confused they were to see me. And I said, hey, I'm here for my first day of my internship. And they said, like, why, who are you? <laughs> um, and they said, like, we accepted you, show me, like, show us. And so I showed them the email and they said, honey, <laughs> you're in the district office. I'm like, yeah, uh, the district office right here, District of Columbia. And they're like, no. Uh, it's in, it's in Sterling, Virginia. And so fortunately I was, I was working, uh, had, had applied to an office. Um, I grew up in Northern Virginia, just outside the beltway. And so the, my representative, her district office happened to be only about 45 minutes to an hour away from the DC office. But I was quickly made aware that, yeah, the, the DC office and the district office are two different things. So the next day I showed up for my first day of my district office internship and uh, a 16 year old who had been there for a couple of weeks before me handed me a stack of papers and uh, told me to start unstapling things for him. And <laughs> I, I thought I was all high and mighty. I had just graduated from Duke with a master's degree. I, I graduated summa cum laude, which I was pretty excited about. And I was unstapling papers for a 16 year old high school student. Um, and then so when, that's not to yeah. discourage people from going to graduate school, but it is a little bit sometimes in DC can be a little bit counterintuitive Yeah, <laughs> to spend time doing more school. The, the short kind of moral of that story, or what I usually tell people is there's a lot of advantages to, to working full-time and, and taking classes at night or, or um, online, however you can do that. Um, there's serious advantages to, to um, kind of doing the traditional model and, and having a good cohort of students. There's also a lot to be said about um, finding a way to work in your your graduate education in, into the work you're already doing. Yeah. Okay. That, yeah, that, um, I'm glad you didn't sign a lease. At first second, I was like, oh my gosh, what if you were supposed to be in a district office in Missouri and <laughs> you had just walked in and now you're, yeah, that, that would be tough. That would be a tough pivot to make. So 
after you got out of the district office and, you know, I really hope this 16 year old is doing well. I hope that they have. I'm blossomed. sure he, he had authority. Will he, I, I just, I listened to him. He knew what he was doing and I didn't. That that assertive that assertive nature that's that's one of the big takeaways again just being assertive. Um, so so how how did your uh, so then how after you got out of the district office and made it up to DC, um, how was your again your your master's degree uh, your, your your school impactful on your work? Yes, it wasn't in getting a job. It wasn't helpful in the least. I think as Caitlin was saying in in having a job and and. Um, thinking about doing my job, it was very, very helpful. So, um, yeah, so fast forward, let's see, two, two internships after that district office internship. So three internships later, finally get a job um, working on policy or staff assistant and, and picking up policy areas. Um, that's when my degree actually ended up being useful. So for, for thinking about things like I think Christian theology has a lot to say about um, what what the family is and what the family is for and what the the state is for, what the government is for, and um, how those two go together. So, um, and even so, I, in I work in tax policy. I also work in financial services, so loans, banking, and all that. And I, I just happened to take a lot of classes at Duke about usury, which is an old school word that we don't use much more, but. Uh, talks about the right relationships between a lender and a borrower. Um, so there's these rich theological ideas that I think have a lot to say about um, public policy. I don't know that they, they answer everything to the, to the last iota, but um, I think for me, having an understanding of God's purpose for the family and um, God's purpose for the state has been very helpful in, in working these, these out and yeah. Caitlin, you're up. Yes. So uh, I work at the Institute for Women's Health now, um, but I'm working for my previous boss at the Department of Health and Human Services. Um, and I really, I, I love the work that we get to do together. Um, so we we're working in the Office of Global Affairs at the Department of Health and Human Services. And we work a lot on women's healthcare issues as the, the name of the new Institute for Women's Health conveys. Um, but a lot of the work that we do is, is trying to keep, trying to protect smaller nations across the world from being threatened at the risk of their healthcare funding um, into having to change their laws regarding things like abortion. Um, and so Valerie, my, my boss, Valerie Huber, she's wonderful. She, she noticed in her negotiations at the UN and at the World Health Organization that negotiations were stalling over the abortion issue but it was keeping important resolutions from passing that would really improve the livelihoods of women across the world. And so her, her whole thing was, why don't we set this issue aside and really work on positive health gains for women around the world? Because there are tons of evidence-based policies that we could implement. We could 
help improve maternal mortality. We can help end female genital mutilation. We can help end early forced marriage. We can like, there are all these things that we can do around the world, but these things are being stalled because people are arguing about the abortion issue. And that's just not an issue that is going to be agreed upon anytime soon. It doesn't seem like, unfortunately. Um, so we are continuing that work now from a nonprofit standpoint, um, building a coalition of nations to stand up to the UN, the World Health Organization and progressive nations who are withholding funding from nations because of the abortion issue. So what is the, I'm really interested in, in hearing more about this. What, what is the biggest need right now that you guys see globally that you're trying to go after particularly? And what are you most excited about um, the work that you're doing? Yeah, um, I think the, the biggest need right now is, is trying to, to get people in the United States to recognize that it's a problem, that there, there is a, a global issue. Um, and, and so we, we have a lot of issues surrounding the abortion the abortion issue here in the United States. And so it, we oftentimes are just like, wow, we've got so many problems here. Um, I don't know why I would need to, to look anywhere else because, because we have so many issues here going on. Um, but I think that the biggest need is right now just getting people to, to recognize that there are people across the world who um who need our help and our nations specifically who need help standing up for progressive countries right and i think one thing that maybe a lot of listeners and people aren't aware of uh is how much government funding is tied to these countries based on the accessibility that they give women to abortion and there's something very wicked about that um, and I know that's part of some that's a concern because I, when I saw you at Ebenezer's coffee, uh, yes. you mentioned some of that. And so that's, uh, I, I, first of all, it seems like people need to be aware of that and that kind of that wickedness, but then also, um, encouraging our government not to send money towards countries who are doing that. Right. Yeah. And, and the, the problem of the UN human, human rights council, um, trying to make a push for making abortion an international human right. And so um, to me, that's one thing that if, if that happens, then the United States would be put in a position to where any laws that we try to create or um, judicial decisions that, that are put forward for, for decisions could be impacted by what the UN says is an international human right. Abortion is not an international human right right now, but that is the goal. The goal um, for a lot of um, nations that are in the UN and then a lot of staffers who work at the UN. Um, so that's one thing that we're trying to push against. But we have been encouraged by the number of countries. We've built a coalition of 36 nations representing over 1.6 billion people who have stood up and said, you know what, we're, 
we don't want to have to provide abortion. We don't want to have to change our laws. A lot of these countries are smaller. They're religious countries. Um, a lot of them are even either Christian nations or Muslim nations. And it does not comport with their beliefs to have to provide abortion. Um, and so it's really encouraging to see them standing up. The, the coalition is built around the Geneva Consensus Declaration. And that was a declaration that my boss, Valerie, was the architect of um, during the last administration. And um, yeah, it's just wonderful to see them standing up in that way. Yeah, I love that. So John, you're interested in the child tax credit. Uh, and what is some work that you're excited about that you're working, seeking to implement? Um, and it sounds like you guys really have some um, uh, harmony here or some like between between y'all's interests and um, work that you look to and hope to see accomplished. Yeah, yeah, there's definitely a lot of overlap. Um, I think... Um, one of the 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 most the best uh, summaries of, of the tax code and why it matters I heard in a um, what movie was uh, on the basis of sex, which is actually a, a biopic about um, Ruth, Bader Ruth Bader Ginsburg of all people. <laughs> but her her husband is a a tax lawyer, and what he says is that um, tax law matters because uh, tax law is essentially a distillation of what what we prioritize or, or value as, as a people. And so I think in the movie, there was the, the reason it came up is there was a, a man who was um, not receiving the same tax benefits as a woman who'd be doing um, the, that, that job. But in, in our case, in the case of the child tax credit, it, it's a question about what is the, the the place of the child? What duties or responsibilities does the state have to the child? Um, I think in the pro-life movement, in, in pro-life policy, there's been an attempt to, and I think it's a really interesting one, to uh, extend the child tax credit to the unborn. Um, because if we can have more and more recognitions in the law that uh, uh, unborn child is, is still just that, a child, um, then we're going to we're going to shift the um, popular understanding here. So and we already have this in lots of ways. Like we have laws that say if um, a pregnant woman is, is killed, that that is more than just a homicide. That's a double homicide. D- double homicide. Um, so there's these small ways in which we're trying to um, kind of triangulate or, or um, recenter how, how to think about this, how to talk about this, because there's a lot on the progressive left who say, yes, we want to give more money to families. And so it, it makes it very difficult for them to say, well, we don't want to give more to families uh, if they have children who uh, unborn children who, who might need medical expenses or um, things, things of that nature. So I, I think it's a a more interesting way of, of getting at this issue than sort of just the back and forth shouting match um, is to say like, hey, we have this this mutual concern here, which is which is um, reducing burdens for the, these families who have, um, face a lot in the first year, whether it's just time, uh, you know, they have to be in NICU or something like that, or if it's financial. And um, so by kind of triangulating in that way, you get past the, the culture war you know, lobbing bombs back and forth of it's a, it's a human or it's not a human. Um, 
So we're, I think we're both kind of playing the long game, trying to, through domestic law or international law, ensuring that, um, that our policies, our principles are, are inching towards life. So you mentioned the long game, and I don't know if this is something you can answer, but uh, how confident do you feel in the long game, whether it's the, uh, the UN or the United States government in passing more laws, um, Supreme Court, I mean, cover of National Review was in row, I think was the cover just a couple weeks ago. Um, what do you? And if, and if you can't say, what, what do you think are some steps that need to be taken? I, I'm hopefully optimistic that we'll see the end of abortion in our lifetime. Um, I think that every year we see more and more statistics show that people are more and more pro-life. Um, a, a greater number of Americans are. I mean, it's just science, right? So... <laughs> Um, as our technology becomes more powerful and, and science recognizes that, yeah, it's, it's a human being. Um, it's alive. It has a heartbeat. Um, <clears throat> so I'm hopefully optimistic. And then also as our technology improves and um, allows the viability of a child from earlier, earlier and earlier ages. I think the there was a story a couple weeks ago about a baby being born and surviving at 21 weeks. Um, so the, the age of viability, quote unquote, I don't think that is as important a factor as the left would make it out to be, but it does keep going down and down and down. Um, so I'm hopefully optimistic in that regard. Yeah, I, I think I'm also optimistic, perhaps less so on um, a complete kind of abolition of, of abortion law. You now hear our little babies in the U.S., um, but but at least of the overturning of Roe and, and this moving to a state decision. Um, mm -hmm. I think Caitlin and I have talked uh, a good deal about um, the... Kind of the the sort of the best way to get there and and um, one thing I saw recently it's somewhat related um, was there's there's a recent study about um, critical race theory and anti-racism training in in the workplace and um, the study found that the kind of more aggressive versions of this ended up actually pushing people the other way so there's um, there, there was a like, well, we're, we're all racist anyways. There's nothing we can do about it. And also I don't like those people teaching this and mandating this. And so we're going to kind of backlash probably in, in an unhelpful direction. I think there's something to be learned there for us as we fight for life too, mm -hmm. is the, the kind of the worst extremes of our coalition are going to be used for fundraising for NARAL mm -hmm. and all these other pro-abortion groups. Mm -hmm. So we, we need to do this in a way that's, I think, respectable, um, but convictional. And, and I think there, there's a useful contrast between kind of the, um, the apocalyptic John Brown. So John Brown was a, uh, you, you probably know, a radical abolitionist to the, the point that he, he murdered people for what he believed was a, a justified end. 
that slavery was so bad that it, it, it basically made um, any means necessary acceptable. Um, on the other side of the, the Atlantic, you had William Wilberforce working through the law, working through culture, um, putting out um, you know, books and, and all of these things to, to actually shift um, the laws on this thing. And, and John Brown uh, only succeeded in, in whipping up um, the pro-slavery South into kind of a further entrenched position, whereas Wilberforce was, was actually successful in this house. So, so one of the things we need to think about is what means are the best for achieving this? And I, I, think, um, I think for now, maybe just saying that these are decisions that the state should be making mm-hmm. is a more kind of Wilberforce leaning um, tactic. To, so to, moving, to moving the ball down the field five or 10 yards versus trying to score touchdowns <laughs> is how right. uh, I've heard it described. I, uh, I was, before I started working in ministry, I was working as a political consultant with a state representative in Texas. And um, she had passed a, worked in the Texas state legislature to pass a, a bill that was more pro-life um, than what was previously on the books, but not as pro-life as certain advocacy groups want. And as y'all aware, I mean, there are a lot of pro-life groups out there and they're not all friends with each other. I mean, a lot of yeah. them are, they don't, they think you're too soft. Some people, mm-hmm. um, but it was a, it was a good bill. It, it moved things in a, in a better direction. It wasn't everything, but it was more than what was there. And at church on Sunday, uh, my pastor from the pulpit called the Texas state legislature, a gaggle of cowards for not passing a, a, as conservative bill as he wanted. And I was like, man, if you only knew like this was as good as we were going to get at the time and to, to call like a very honorable woman, the representative, I was working on their her campaign, like a coward. I thought this is so unhelpful in, yeah. in actually it, solving this problem. Yeah, it, it is sad. I've heard politics described as the art of the possible. I don't uh, know who that quote is attributable to. Otto but, von Bismarck. Yeah. And it's so true that when you're in this space, you you have to do what's possible. It, we're living in a real place and time, and we have to work with reality. Um, and so it's great if your ideals can guide you um, as they should. But, but achieving the ideal isn't always a possible uh, first step. You have and, to be and, strategic. Well, and maybe, oh, yes, here we go. Now, so you have you have one of your sons here. Who is this? No one can see the the video, but I can. Yes, he's still in his jammies. Oh, that's, okay. So, you know, if if politics is the art of the possible, parenting, uh, the, the disparity between the ideal, the optimal, and the reality is is there. So what is it like? working on the hill being parents for for the sake of our listeners what are your son's names and uh how's it going yeah so this is remy now we have both of them <laughs> oh remy my gosh and they are, they are 15 months old all boy yes <laughs> all over the place all the time <laughs> i love it i love it um they're a lot of fun yeah, but I think being a young staffer on the hill with kids is is kind of hard. Yeah, um, it is. <laughs> but it's also very expensive. Childcare in DC 
especially for two, we pay more usually than what we pay for our house each month. Um, so that's a little. Well, I wish I wish that the what I'm seeing right now could be <laughs> by the listeners. It is it is awesome. Caitlin, you're sitting here. John, you're holding both of your sons. This is this is a beautiful picture, and and I think just a really wonderful way to end this show talking about y'all's life, how you met your work for families and the unborn and um, just really thankful for you guys and all that you're doing and the good work. And I hope that you guys have a wonderful time in Tennessee. Thanks. Well, yeah. And I'm glad even if the listener can't see them, that you can see my little tax credits. (laughs) Yeah. John, John loves to, to call them his little tax credits. Fabulous. Every time you come home from work, it's a reminder of what you're, what you're working on. <laughs> yeah, it's a little self-interested, I suppose. Well, I started working on it before we had kids, so there's there's that. But <laughs> yeah, I think um, my boss loves, there's a, a quote from Lincoln about the purpose of government. And um, I think if we are to figure out what we ought to do and what policy ought to look like, we need to know what, what government is for. And, and Lincoln says that government is... Um, as he's defining the, the um, union, um, he says, the purpose of government is to uh, lift artificial burdens from all shoulders, to clear the laudable pursuit of, of um, yeah. Yeah, to clear the paths of laudable pursuit for all, so that all may have a fair start in the race of life. And I think the child tax credit, um, pro-life policy, these are all about making sure that everyone has a fair start. Um, everyone has a start that's, um, you know, that are, are able to start and that there's not government burdens. Um, there's not yeah. wicked government laws allowing, um, you know, pre- preventing some from ever getting that start. And, and so we think that about the family, we think that about children. And that's why we like to do the work that we do. So, well, thanks for- parenting. Yeah. <laughs> I love it. Well, guys, thank you all so much for coming on. I hope that you have a wonderful rest of your week. And uh, thank you so much for listening. Um, you guys are on Twitter. You need are. to be followed. Oh, yeah. So how can we how can we follow you on Twitter? I am at Anna Kate Schelt. And John is at J-J-A-Y Schelt, S-H-E-L-T. Um, and yeah. If you want to, you can follow us there. Hopefully we tweet good things. We mostly things. just tweet about the boys. Yes. About <laughs> inflation. Yeah. Weird theology. <laughs> Look, we need we need this wholesome. We need the weird Protestant Twitter. Yeah. Uh, the, weird Protestant Twitter. You need the wholesome family pics and <laughs> and stories. Those are the best. It's it's a, okay. it's a in fact. It's Tuesday, so we've got to post a picture for Twin Tuesday today. So, oh, don't, yeah, I'll don't see it. Okay. Well, um, yeah, thank you all so much for listening, and we'll be back with you next week. <laughs>